Let me introduce myself if I don't know you. My name is Glenn, uh, Glenn Barnes. I'm the, one of the pastors here. And just, again, like I've said, so thankful that you're joining us um, to get to, together this morning and invite you to, um, uh, to really uh, join in uh, this morning. Well, hey, I have been gone for a couple weeks. As I mentioned, I really um, have missed you while I was over in um, Tanzania. I was there with Hope of the Nations, and I was teaching at the Hope of the Nations Bible College. Um, so that's a cool opportunity. I go and I teach a two-week class on biblical preaching. Um, so many of you have supported and our church has supported um, the Hope of the Nations Bible College through the years, and they finally completed their brand new campus, which is ridiculously beautiful and um, awesome, and so we love that. Already, it is a hub of activity, uh, tons of things happening around there. Here's some of my students. I had 29 really eager students. They just love that. Um, we spent about six hours in class uh, together every day, but I also happened to be one of the more popular teachers because I always made sure we got out in time to play a little volleyball. Um, and if you don't recognize me, I'm the guy in the blue shirt there. Um, and so, um, just so a uh, little frame of reference. Uh, but Hope of the Nations is amazing. Um, they do all kinds of different things. One of the other ministries that our church has been involved with through the years is their primary school. Um, and so I went and visited that, and that school is just thriving. Even though the school is actually in one of the poorer neighborhoods of that region, still it continues to be just one of the top schools in that whole region. Their testing always puts them right at, if not at the very um, top. And so it's a quality education uh, really good education. Um, the kids receive a lot of uh, love, um, a lot of blessings. It's a Christian education, um, the great atmosphere. And, um, and so the, the, it's also all done in English, which is a huge advantage for these students um, as they really look towards their future. And so uh, it was amazing to be a part of that. Hey, I did want to let you know that especially during COVID, uh, the Hope of the Nation's primary school, uh, some of the funding has kind of been in decline. And so they have a new program, uh, kind of a child sponsorship program, where you can sponsor a student um, and $50 a month make sure that that child is not only uh, receiving all the benefits from school, including the uniforms, the, the, all the materials, two meals a day, all of the blessings um, that go with that to their family as well. But there's a new program that actually at that same sponsorship price allows this child to receive health care benefit, kind of a, a local health care benefit, which is really uh, a just an amazing advantage. I can't believe that they were offering this. And so really great, um, $50 a month. They asked if we as a church would sponsor 30 of those kids. And I said, we will uh, do our very best. So I encourage you, um, if you would like to give in that way, there's going to be some packets out in the, um, the lobby today. I encourage you to stop by, take a look at those. Um, and that $50 a month really changes the life, not only of that child, but that community. And so I encourage you to take a look at that. But hey, every time you go on a, a trip like that, you just meet some incredible people. That was the case for me this last uh, couple weeks, and I want to introduce you to one of them. His name is Evans uh, Barron. He was one of my students at the Bible College, uh, but he also serves as like the children's pastor at this little church. They planted a new church not that long ago, again in one of the very poor, very Muslim areas of uh, the Kigoma region, um, and he leads the children's ministry there. It's called Lakeside Church is what they call it, um, and they call their kids' ministry Impact 
kids. And I wanted you to see just a little bit and hear a little my bit from Evans about I'm a reader of the Impact Kids. Yeah, it's my hope, always my, in my life, it's my hope to impact every kids in my country because also I'm from there. And I, I thank God for the talent which, yeah, which God gave me. And until now, I use my talent to teach them. So when I, and that's so every, it is my obvious to to impact them in order to know how God is to them, where they are from, and how they can create their future in Jesus Christ. And and that's why when we have our like a state, you can say impact kids. Yeah, that's the thing which I tried every day to teach them. Impact kids. So we got to hear it one more time for the kids all the way in America. <laughs> okay, I don't know about you, but I just love that. He, he, every time he says, impact kids, their response is, we love God, we love people, and that's what they are all about. Um, so I wanted you to get a chance to meet Evans, but as you see him there, there's something you need to know about him, um, which is that you see kind of this smile and, and a joy on his face. That was not always the case. His life has not always um, been easy. In fact, his life has been quite a, a challenge. Um, like a lot of those kids that you saw in that just that video there, um, he grew up with very little. In fact, as a child, he was often kind of passed around from, uh, usually from family member to family member, sometimes to neighbor, sometimes uh, to no one. Um, He essentially grew up without the support of parents. But here's what's kind of odd about Evans's story. His dad um, is actually still alive, and his dad was a, a, a pastor. And yet, as many of you know, just because a person says that they're a Christian, just because a person even goes into ministry, that doesn't always mean that their life matches up with the words that they say. And that was a situation um, with Evans's dad. He essentially abandoned the, the family um, for the church in this very kind of twisted, dysfunctional um, way. Uh, Evans's dad, who was a very hard and abusive man, had this life that just didn't match up with the words that he would say. And so he would move around from town to town and church to church with no concern for his family. He would often just leave the family behind and, and go on to the, to the next church. And so Evans and his siblings um, grew up literally seeing the very worst that you could of, of the church and of, you know, this so-called um, Christianity. He saw a dad who preached one thing that lived an- and lived another, uh, literally abandoned his family in the name of religion. I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that that, that story just makes me so angry. And yet here is Evans with this genuine Christian faith, with this smile on his face dedicated to teaching kids every day to love God and love people. And I look at that situation and I know his story and I got to thinking, what motivates someone like that? You know, what gets into someone like Evans? What helps him to overcome the hardships that quite honestly might have chased a lot of people away from church? A lot of people have those experiences and they say, I don't want anything to do with religion. I don't want to have anything to do with the church. But instead, it's chased uh, Evans to grow closer to knowing and serving Jesus. Using some of the language that we're going to see in our passage here from 1 Peter 3, I look at Evans's life and I, I say, what inspires him to be someone who loves life and sees good days even when times are tough. 
Well, these are the kinds of questions that we are going to look at uh, this morning in our passage from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. So as we jump into that, remember uh, this book. We've been going through it for the last several weeks now. Remember, the book of 1 Peter is written to persecuted and scattered Christians. Um, Peter is in this section where he's really reminding the people to live a godly life, even though they're being kind of pushed uh, to the outskirts of society. So kind of the theme verse is he said... uh, uh, He says, live such good lives among the unbelievers that they would see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. And that kind of introduces this section. And then he introduces all of these kind of good deeds that people should look at and see in your life. And he talks about living a holy life that, 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 that abstains from sin. He talks about uh, respecting authority and being submissive to authority, whether it's government authority or or in the workplace. He talks about submissive relationships in marriage and having healthy Christian marriages. And today, he talks about how we put those things into practice um, in a church setting. By the way, um, I was, like I said, I was gone these last couple of weeks, but didn't Steve Steele do a great job walking us through those things? Although I'll tell you, he's on vacation this week, which is well-deserved. Although I got to apologize. I know there's a lot of complaining about me and, you know, him, when I, you know, him having to have these hard passages. So there's nothing I can do about it, but don't encourage him. Uh, but overall, <laughs> overall, I thought he just did a great job. Uh, if you could get past the, um, the complaining there. Um, <laughs> And I'm counting on him watching this. But today, Peter continues um, this theme of living a godly life. He talks about living his life on mission. And so this theme is how to, to love life and see good days, even in the midst of trial. And he starts by talking about, if you want to love life and see good days, this is kind of this phrase he uses. Uh, it starts with being a person that seeks peace, seeks peace. You might want to jot that down in your notes. And let's jump into our passage. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight, where it says this, it says, finally, all of you be like-minded. So again, he's writing to kind of the the Christian church here. And he says, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Four, and then here he quotes Psalm 34, which is actually a psalm that David writes when he's undergoing uh, a lot of persecution. And David writes in Peter quotes where he says, whoever would love life and see good days, love life and see good days, they must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he starts this idea, um, and there's obviously a lot in there, but I've kind of grouped it together under this heading of being people that seek peace. And and here's some of the things uh, that we see there. Um, What does it mean to seek peace, especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And let's just kind of pull these verses apart, beginning in verse 8, where it says this. It says, first of all, you should be like-minded. You should be like-minded with one another. So obviously Peter includes this being like-minded because it's not something that comes naturally to us, right? We're self-minded. We're not always like-minded with other people. So what does it mean to be like-minded, especially in a a church like this? Um, Well, most people that I read say that, that, that Peter was not necessarily talking about what you call unanimity, where everybody agrees with, you know, everybody on every single point. He's talking more about a spirit of unity. If everybody just agrees with everybody on every single uh, point and every single thing, that's not necessarily a church. That's, that's a, a cult, 
right? And so Peter is writing, he's saying, no, you need to be like-minded, especially when it comes to the big things of the faith, when it comes to the core truths and the, the core mission of biblical Christianity. So in our step one class, in our membership class here at the church, I go over our church doctrinal statement. It's about a dozen statements that we say are the kind of the essential core beliefs uh, of our church. And and we want to be like-minded in those things. And so this is what I say, and it's actually written at the top of our doctrinal statement. It says, in essential beliefs, we have unity. We are like-minded on those essential beliefs. There's some non-essential beliefs where Christians are going to debate one another. and, And in those things, we have liberty. And in all beliefs, we show love. You can be like-minded and still show love with other people. I think the, the kids at Lakeside Church are just an awesome example of this. I mean, they focus on what does it mean to love God and love people. They're keeping the big thing, the main thing, the main thing. So be like-minded, Peter says, if you're going to stand out as, as different and you're going to love life and see good days. He also says, be sympathetic to one another. Be sympathetic you know, the truth is we live in a day of kind of hyper-tribalism, right? Where, where one of the things that really has gone missing in our culture is, is sympathy. Because sympathy is this idea that I want to understand where the other person is coming from. I want to feel what the other person feels. I want to know and, and experience what that other person um, experiences. Uh, the word sympathy literally means to suffer with or to feel with, to, to feel with someone beyond uh, ourselves. It's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12 when we're talking about the church. He says, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And when one of us experiences blessing, we all experience his blessing because we sympathize one with another. We're like-minded. We're sympathetic. Next, he says that you love one another. Now, that seems kind of obvious to us, but I, I can just picture Peter as he's writing down that word, those words to encourage these scattered Christians to love one another. I can almost just picture in his mind that he was remembering back to that night just before Jesus was to lay down his life. And Jesus gathers together his disciples and Peter's right in the middle of it. And Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving you. You guys, but I'm going to give you a new commandment. And by this new commandment, the world is going to know that you are my disciples. And then he looks him in the eyes and he says, this is a new commandment. Love one another. Love one another in the way that I have loved you. And so now Peter, who's been trying to live those things out in his life, passes it on to the others. And he says, this is how we stand out and live such good lives that people look and say, man, there's something different about those people. He also says, be compassionate. Like sympathy, compassion actually speaks of kind of a deep emotional um, connection. Uh, the Greek word, it's a great word, it's the word splogma. Splogma, it refers to a, a feeling that's deep down even in our, our guts. It refers to kind of like the insides of a person. And the church ought to be the safest place for people that are hurting. The church ought to be a place that people can come and know that they are going to receive compassion that people are going to, to welcome them, that they're going to find love and healing, that the church is a hospital for the wounded where people can come and, and meet the great healer, Jesus Christ himself. And so he says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate. And then he kind of ends this list by saying, be humble. Being humble ties all these things um, together. I read this great uh, quote from a, an old scholar by the name of F.B. Myers was writing about this verse on humility. And F.B. Myers says it like this. He says, I used to think of the Christian life and I, I thought of all like the blessings and the gifts of, of Christianity. He said, I, I felt like those were things that God put on shelves for us to discover. And the way that you discovered these blessings is the taller you grew, the more mature you grew in your Christian faith, the, the more 
before you could reach up to that next rung and reach the the thing that's on that next shelf. And the, the taller and the stronger you grew, the more blessings you could receive. He says, you know what, I've come to see it kind of differently. I still believe that God puts his blessings on shelves. He says, now I see that you don't reach them by growing taller. I see that he doesn't put them on uh, the shelves above, but he puts them on the shelves below. And you actually reach those things by growing humble and stooping down. And that's where the ultimate blessings in Christ are, in giving our life away in humility. And so Peter lays out this vision for how the church should be different, right? He's saying, live such good lives that the people look at you and say, man, we want to glorify God because we, what, we, what we see. And so Peter lays out this, uh, this idea, just like he says, this is how marriages should look, and this is how submission to authority should work. This is how it should look in your church. And he gives us this vision uh, of like-mindedness, of compassion, of humility. And those are the things that literally hold this church together. We know that the church from that time on began to experience growth and power. In fact, I love uh, um, the words of a second century historian by the name of Tertullian. We have some of his writings. And Tertullian, um, who became a Christian, said that the Roman government, especially in the second century, so a little after this, the Roman government was always very suspicious of the church, especially because the church was, was growing and people would add to it. All kinds of different outside people would come and join this. And so the Roman church was always, or the Roman government was always very suspicious of this. They would actually send spies in to kind of see what was happening at these churches. And we have the recording of one of those spies who said this after, I guess, spending some time with these Christians. He says this, these Christians are very strange people. They meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image. In other words, it's not around an idol or an image that they're worshiping. They speak of one by the name of Jesus, who is absent, but whom they seem to be expecting at any moment. And then he goes on by saying, and my, how they love him and how they love one another. I think, man, what a compelling and attractive testimony to be able to have the world look and say, man, this is the way they love Jesus, and this is the way they love one another. And that's what, what Peter says. And he says, that's really the heart of, of learning to love life and see good days. It's not acquiring a bunch of stuff. It's not climbing some ladder. If anything, it's stooping lower in humility and being a person who seeks peace. As you keep reading on in this passage, he says, it's also someone that doesn't repay evil with evil, but replace evil with blessing. That's what it says there in verse Verse 9, don't be someone that returns insult with insult, but actually repay evil with a blessing, which is a very hard thing to do. I actually heard another pastor talk about this, and he used a great example that I'll share with you. Um, if you're old enough, you would remember this. About 15 years ago, um, there was a horrible school shooting in an Amish community. You remember that? Um, there was this man by the name of uh, Charles Robert, I believe was his name, and he walked into this Amish school, and he started shooting, and he shot 10 girls between the age of 6 and 14. Five of them died. Um, and then eventually he turned the, the gun on himself and, and killed himself. You know, it's one of those things that is now far too common and far too senseless and horrible. Um, but in this case, kind of what caught the attention of the world was not the shooting because, you know, we're used to that. But in this case, what caught the attention was the incredible response of the Amish community. You see, within hours, they were overcome, uh, even though they were overcome with grief, within hours they began to speak words of, of compassion. And they began to speak words of, of actually even forgiveness to Robert's widow. 
After about a week, there had been 2,400 media stories that were written around the world. Almost every single one of them focused on the the words of the forgiveness of the Amish people. There were two reporters who kind of took this to the next step, and they wrote a little book called Amish Grace. Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. And I wanted to just read some of what they said as we think about this idea of what it means to return a blessing even with insult and suffering. This is what they said. They said, the remarkable thing about the Amish forgiveness was its speed. Later that day, Amish people went to the home of Charles Robert to express forgiveness and support. During the next two days on television, several Amish people spoke words of forgiveness. The world saw numerous Amish people speaking words of kindness and forgiveness. There was remarkable absence of anger and rage. And then get this, their forgiveness quickly became the big story, eclipsing the story of violence. By the way, just like the cross of Christ became eventually the big story. One of the reporters asks, why did the Amish forgive? Why did they forgive? I searched for answers to that question and I finally realized forgiveness is woven into the fabric of their culture. It's a part of their religious DNA, which is to say is a part of their Christian faith. And you think about that and you think, talk about returning insult with blessing. In fact, one of the most powerful images of that whole experience, as you can see it here on the, the screen, um, was not just the words that they spoke, but the following Saturday after all this happened, they were having the funeral for Charles Robert. And the majority of the people that showed up for that funeral that day were the Amish people. These are people that literally had just buried their own children earlier that week, some even earlier that day. You look at this picture and you think of all of these people coming to be people of of grace and compassion and peace. The funeral director who watched all this, this is what he said. I realized I was witnessing a modern day miracle. And I share that story because doesn't our world need some miracles these days? And one of the miracles that we can show is that we would be not only people of peace, but that we return kindness, even when that's not what's shown to us. That we return blessing, even what is given to us is evil, or even what is given to us is insult. Now, I want to be careful here, because forgiveness doesn't mean that there's no pain. Those Amish people, they were suffering deeply. They, They never denied that. Suffering or forgiveness doesn't mean that there's no boundaries that we set up in time. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be justice if there's an opportunity. But repaying uh, repaying, uh, evil with blessing demonstrates the power of God in a way that is one of the most powerful things that Christians can do. And so can I just ask you, are you that kind of person? Are you the kind of person that not only seeks peace, but do you return blessing to others? Because Peter says, not only if you want to love life and see good days, but if you want to to let the world know that there's something different in you, that's the one of the most powerful ones. Well, he keeps going on and he says, so not only be a person that seeks peace and do these kind of things, but he also says you, you just need to expect and be ready to endure suffering. As we've said, so much of the heart of this book is, um, is about suffering. And so look at verse 13. We'll kind of pick the, the text back up. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? So that's kind of the principle. If you're, you're eager to do good, you shouldn't face harm. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You don't have to fear their threats and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
So we've said time and time again that this book is written to people who are facing hardship. Um, you, you know, we purposely chose this book for this time in, in history that we are living as American Christians today. We know that we have a culture that is in many ways trying to push away Christianity, trying to, to push to the margins Christianity. And, and so, um, yet even there, they're called to endure. And so in the same way, we're called to endure. And so in those few verses, uh, Peter talks about different kinds of suffering that you can um, go through. Um, I grouped these together under the, the heading, the three Joes of suffering. Why do I mean that? Take a look at this with me. First of all, when you suffer, there are sometimes when you suffer when you've done something wrong, right? You've made a mistake, you've harmed someone, you've done something wrong, and there is consequence, there is suffering that goes with that. An example of this in the Old Testament is Jonah. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah rejects what God tells him to do. Um, he, he runs the other way from what God tells him to do. He has no compassion for the Ninevites. And so because of that, Jonah finds himself suffering inside the belly of a whale. And so sometimes you suffer when you've done something wrong, but you know what? The truth is sometimes you suffer even when what you've done is right. Maybe you've not done anything wrong at all. In fact, this is the time that Peter says you're going to receive a, a blessing specifically. And in the Old Testament, the example that I'm thinking of that is, is Joseph, right? Joseph doesn't do anything wrong. In fact, he's a, a model of integrity in many ways, and he finds himself in prison and suffering. And then a third kind of suffering is suffering, but there's no real perceivable reason. You don't know why. Have I done something wrong? Have I done something right? Or is it just that what the Bible says is true, that the rain falls on the just and, and the unjust, right? Good and bad things happen to, to all people. It's a part of the, the common era of grace that we live in. And so an example of this is Job, right? Job. And, and so I like that little example, the three Jobs of suffering, because all three uh, guys suffer in a slightly different way. But here's what I want you to know about that. In each one of those situations, and in each one of our situations, God is at work even in the suffering. And I love these verses because Paul says, if you're going to, I'm sorry, Peter says, if you're going to suffer, expect that and you've got to endure it. But then in verse 15, he, he, he says this little thing. He says, and as you do, revere Jesus as Lord. I learned that verse as set apart Jesus as Lord. Those words are so significant to set apart Jesus as Lord. Why are those words so significant? Well, in those days, as you know, Roman culture was religiously very pluralistic. So the, the Roman culture had all kinds of, of different pantheon of, of gods. And so if you were a follower of Jesus and you were a Christian and you were to go into some sort of public place, even the Colosseum or the marketplace or something like that, and you went in and you shouted out and you raised your fist and you said, Jesus is God, people might have kind of looked around at you a little bit and said, yeah, sure, that's cool, because they had all kinds of gods. So to add Jesus to the list would have just been adding one more to the list. But if that same person would have gone into that same Colosseum or to that same marketplace and raised their fist and said, Jesus is Lord, at that point, they might have earned themselves a trip to the lions or to be burned at the stake. Because you see, the Roman Caesars fancied themselves as Lord, and they demanded allegiance. 
And so to say that I'm going to give my allegiance to something else, something that is not of this world, literally challenged everything and it could have cost them their life. And I share that with you because we gather on a Sunday morning and these words are 2,000 years old to us and we jot down some ideas about maybe how to get a little help in our Christian life. You need to understand that Peter is writing to them words of life and death. In some way he's saying, you guys, this is how we lay down our lives. When you say that Jesus is Lord, how can they do that? Because if you've noticed from the very beginning of this book, it's filled with a sense of hope. And the idea that Peter lives with, and ultimately is going to be the thing that costs him his life, is this idea is, is what's the worst that they can do to me? They can take my life. He says, but my life is not found in this world. You see, he had seen Jesus go to the cross. He'd seen Jesus suffer, but he'd also seen the empty tomb. And he'd also seen Jesus resurrected. And so he talks about Jesus not just as hope, but as a living hope. He talks about Jesus as not just the word, but he talks about him as the living word. He talks about him as not just a stone that we build our lives on, but Peter says, no, he's the living stone. You see, the idea is that there's not only power in this resurrection, but it's what we can stake our life on. So he says, sure, you're going to endure some suffering. There are going to be some people that are mean to you, push you away, say bad things against you, maybe even harm you. We can endure those things and even return good with those things because we know that not only is God with us in our suffering, but we're going to set Jesus apart as Lord in the midst of that. And that's a radical teaching. I wanted to make sure that we didn't just see this as one more little thing, but see it for the power that it had when when, uh, Peter first wrote that. And so he goes on and he says, uh, you know, be ready to endure suffering. But then the last point as we kind of head towards home here is he says, if you're going to live good lives or live, uh, love life and, and see good days, you need to be someone that turns misery into ministry, turns misery into ministry. Why do I say that? Let's look at verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. So this is a really well-known and quoted verse, this idea that we should be prepared to give a reason for the the answer or give a a reason for the hope that we have um, for for our faith. Um, But the truth is this verse often gets quoted out of context. If you've been around kind of Christian circles, you know a lot of times this verse gets quoted just all by itself. And and the idea is that we should be ready to give a reason for the hope. And, And the idea behind it is that every Christian should be ready to give kind of these airtight, apologies a little intellectual arguments for why we believe the, the Christian faith. These kind of arguments that will put a person in their place, shut them down, and convince them. And in some ways, we do need to have an intellectual defense for our faith, and I hope you can give those reasons. So in that sense, it's true. But I want you to think about this verse in kind of a fresh way. Think about it in the context of all these things that we've been talking about it. Uh, Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, is describing how Christians should live humbly in times of persecution, in times of hardship. I think in a way, Peter is saying the, the best hope that you have for, for teaching, uh, for best hope for, for giving an argument for the Christian faith is actually the way that you endure trial, the way that you endure opposition and face persecution. You see, in the context, the unbelieving world would look and say, what is it with these guys? What is this, these Christians with the way that they return um, 
you know, blessing with evil, the way they're like-minded, the way they love one another. Man, there's got to be something different, something winsome, something attractive, something hope-filled. And it begs the question, what's going on with, with these, these people? And, and that's when you're prepared to give a reason for the hope. Peter gives us kind of some specific things. It's great stuff. He says, when you share this living hope, he says, make sure that you're always prepared. He says, be prepared. And that's true. We need to have our eyes open and look for opportunities to speak words of of truth and grace and compassion uh, for Christ and be prepared for those things. I think a lot of times we miss opportunities because we're just kind of cruising through our day without thinking that God's got me here today. I'm made for this moment to be a blessing. So be prepared, Uh, but he also says share a reason, not an argument, or share an answer, not an argument. And what you have here is more of a dialogue. He says when someone asks you, then you answer, and so there's more of this dialogue. The truth is most people are not one to faith by an argument. They're one to faith by dialogue and discussion and, and, and seeing our lives and seeing that Christ can make a difference. So share a, uh, an answer, not an argument. But be personal. Be personal. Share your hope. You know, we live in this world that's very relativistic. And so, you know, everybody says, oh, truth is, is just relative. But in that world, one of the things that no one can take away from you or from me is your story, Right? Because it's, it's your truth. And you could say, this is why Jesus is my hope. This is where that comes from. And, and so we need to be personal. And I think a lot of times we think people don't want to hear our, our story. But, but told in the right way, people are very eager to hear about your life. And then finally he says, but you've got to watch your behavior. Speak with gentleness and respect. Now I know we live in a day when gentleness and respect have basically been thrown out the window, Right? Uh, we live in a day where, you know, the heroes of cable news and, and social media are not people of gentleness, word, and respect. It's the people that can shout the loudest. It's the people who can, you know, have just the super sharp argument to put a person in their place. But as I think about all of those people having those heated arguments and demanding their rights and standing up and, and fighting these battles, I think sometimes what happens if you win that battle, but you lose the war? Right? What happens if we're so busy advocating and shouting for our rights that people stop listening because they don't see a gentleness and respect? And Peter says, no, that can never be the case. I mean, these guys had it hard. And he says, no, people, you should be known for your gentleness and respect. Well, hey, as we conclude here, again, kind of the idea of this whole thing is this is how the church stands out as different in those days. And I mentioned the writing of of Tertullian from the second century. There's actually a a modern um, author by the name of Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark has done quite a bit of of work on the history of the church and has talked a lot about how the church grew, especially in kind of those first 300 years after Christ. And he lists a number of reasons in this book about kind of why the church grew in those days. And I want to just share a few of them with you. The first one is he says that that church was a multi- ethnic, or they experienced a multi-ethnic unity, a multi-ethnic unity. And this was brand new. For the first time, people looked at an organization and they said that there's diversity in it. It's Jew and Gentile. It's slave and free. It's male and female. And what they saw is that people were like-minded. And Rodney Stark says that's one of the things that led to the growth of the church, is that there was unity, like-mindedness even, 
among diversity. Another one is that there was radical generosity. They were driven by compassion. They were driven by sympathy. So they took care of the poor and the needy among them. There's a great quote from one of the emperors who said this, these godless Galileans take care of not only their own poor, but they take care of ours as well. And people stood up and took notice because of the compassion and generosity of this people. Third one that he says is there's an unyielding value of of life. Rodney Stark said that there's something different about these people in the way that they honestly, they loved life and they saw good days and they wanted to not just experience them themselves, but they had a belief that all people deserved the opportunity to love life and to see good deeds, see good days. This is rooted in the belief that all people are made in the image of God. And so other people that Roman culture just would overlook or throw away and be neglected, Christians said, no, we care about you. You know, Steve mentioned some of this last week, um, but the Roman culture actually had kind of a horrendous baby termination scheme. And it was not too far different than ours today, I guess. But the idea was basically if you didn't want the child, you could get rid of it. And so after a child was born, if you didn't want that child for whatever reason, you could essentially abandon it. You could, could put it on the, the trash heap. And Christians looked around at this and they said, no. They said, no, those kids are made in the image of God. They practiced what was sometimes referred to as baby runs. They would go out at night and they would walk the streets and they would listen for the cries. And when they heard those cries, they would go and they'd take those babies and they'd bring them home. Because you see, there's no throwaways that God makes. Once God's knitting something together in their mother's womb, they're valuable and they're precious and they deserve to be cared for. Because everybody deserves the opportunity to love life and to see good days. And Peter understood all of those things. And he says, hey, you guys, I know it's tough out there. I know there's a lot of opposition. Let's not focus on that. He says, live such godly lives that even the unbelievers would look and say, I want to have a part of that. And then when they saw those kind of things, they were able to give a reason for the hope and point people and they would say, I want some of that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the, the truth of these ancient words that ring loud and clear in our hearts today. And so I thank you for what you want to teach myself and my brothers and sisters here gathered today. Lord, that we would be your people standing apart as, as different, bringing you glory. Help us to love one another. Help us to be like-minded. Help us to show compassion, be driven by humility. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, even as we sit just kind of in the quiet of this moment and let this word wash over us, that you would transform our lives, chip away the selfishness, Chip away the pride, replace it with humility. Chip away the greed, replace it with generosity. Chip away the sin, replace it with holiness. Chip away myself and replace it with Jesus Christ alive in me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for guiding us and we commit this to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.